Let's pull up James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is a very famous passage and there's been a lot of talk about this passage and a lot of controversy throughout the centuries. A lot of people have not so much liked this book. One of them was the great reformer Martin Luther 500 years ago. He called James an epistle of straw. He didn't like it because he, like many others throughout the years, have, have thought that James was arguing with the Apostle Paul's teaching on faith, that we are saved by faith. Uh, and uh, so before we jump into James, I'm going to, I, I feel like we, we need to talk about what Paul said and what I think he meant so we can see what James meant, which is quite different. So we're going to go into some theological waters. Are you guys, you, you okay with that? You're going to have to be, because I'm going to do it regardless, even if you're like, no. So this is a rhetorical question. Are you, are, can we do that? Woohoo! All right. So uh, uh, here's one of the things, Paul talked about faith and works all throughout his epistles, but especially in the books of Romans and Galatians. And here's just one example. Just read this scripture uh, from Galatians 2, 15 and 16. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, at first glance, at first glance, it, it seems like Paul is, is separating faith and works, like, like he's taking a sword and dividing the things we believe with our minds and the way we live our lives. It seems like he's saying uh, it's this stuff that matters, the things we believe, not the things that we do. But we have to look a little bit closer. And in order to do that, we have to understand a, a bit about the, the, this whole situation that, that is a huge part of the book of Acts and the epistles. And it was this question. What do we do with people who are not Jewish but have become followers of Jesus? What do we do? Because the entire Old Testament, of course, is the history of the Jewish people walking with God. And finally, Jesus, uh, Jesus who, who, of course, was uh, one of those. He, he was Jewish. Jesus coming in and offering this, this, this new way. If, if Jews receive Jesus, not a problem. Like, this is, we, we keep on doing what we're doing, but except that he's our Savior now. Like, he's our Savior, and he is the source of salvation and all these things, right? The question was, what if someone's not Jewish? For example, what if they're Galatian? Now, we, we did a study on Galatians about a year and a half ago. I don't know if you guys remember this. But the Galatian people were actually the Celts before they moved up into, uh, uh, into the Isles. They were like the, the Celtic people. They were like these crazy barbarians. Now, I am, I am Scotch-Irish by descent. And so I see this, and like, you, you see people describe the Celtic people, and these crazy people would paint themselves blue and go into battle and scream. Like, it's straight out of Braveheart. 
That was the Galatians. That was what they, and, and so these people had met Jesus. And it was this amazing thing. And Paul planted a church among them and they were, they were doing great. And then people came in behind them after Paul left and said, hey, you know what? It's great that you got this Jesus guy, but what you really need is to become Jewish. What you really need is to be circumcised. All the males need to be circumcised. What you really need is to follow all the Mosaic law. That's the thing that saves you. So Paul wrote this blistering letter against that idea, saying all you need is Jesus. He is the source of salvation, nothing else. Not works of the law. Now that term, works of the law, like he just said here, this is the rub. What does he mean by works of the law? This is where we're going to get a little nerdy here, okay? This word, law, we read it, for, you know, of course, this is from the Greek, the, the, the word is namos, and it, it, it could be just like in English, it could be law, or it could be the law, like a law in a very general sense, or the law. In Hebrew, the word was Torah. A law or the Torah, like the Jewish scriptures. And so you wouldn't necessarily know what he's referring to except by the context. Didn't have the same rules of capitalization like we do in English. So my, but here, here's, here's my thought and what many scholars have been proposing. Like, guys, what if works of the law wasn't general works of the law, as in like general righteous living, this is the way we ought to live, what if works of the law actually was referring to works of the Jewish scriptures, the, 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 the Torah ceremonies, particularly like circumcision? Let's read it this way. Let's, let's try to insert the word Torah and see what happens in this passage. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Paul says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the Torah, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the Torah. Because by works of the Torah, no one will be justified. Do you see the difference here? I, I'm proposing to you that, that when he's talking about works of the law against faith, he's talking about something quite specific. He's talking about religious ceremony. He's talking specifically to say, you think that this thing, whether it be circumcision or you bring it into even the, the, the Christian church throughout the centuries, some have said it was taking communion. Some have said it was baptism. And, and in the last century, people have uh, come up with like the sinner's prayer, which is a formulation from Romans 10. It's like, this thing, you have to do this thing to become a Christian or whatever, this is the thing that brings salvation. And Paul would say to that, actually no, it's faith in Christ that brings salvation, not works of the law, not religious ceremony. Are you with me? Okay, so, watch what happens here uh, when we, <laughs> we take that and, and, and we, we think, okay, what is, James, what is James actually meaning then? Because the assumption has been that James was coming against Paul saying, no, he, works does matter. But I don't think he was. I think he was coming against the misreading of Paul. I think he was coming and talking to people who thought that he was like dividing up faith and works. And he thinks these are two, in, two, two things that is like totally disconnected. I think what he was doing was something far different. I think 
he was trying to sort of correct that misinformation, that misunderstanding. And Paul was never trying to separate belief from action. They're not opposite entities. James, I think, is trying to set the record straight. Belief is inseparably connected with lifestyle. Inseparably connected. They're not opposites. They're family. And they validate one another. There was a man in 1859 named Charles Blondin. Wasn't actually his real name. He had a French name, but he was a performer and he took on uh, (laughs) an English-sounding name and he had really, really blonde hair, so they called him Charles Blondin. He was a performer. He was a wire walker. I don't know actually the formal term for that now that I think about it. They called him a rope dancer back in the day. That was his term, which sounds way cooler on a resume. It was a rope dancer. He came to the U.S. and uh, in, in 1859, he, he wanted to put on a show. So he went to the biggest arena he could find called Niagara Falls. And he got a rope of hemp that was 1,200 feet long and suspended it over the falls. I don't know if you guys remember, about 10 years ago, this guy did this again, and it was like live on TV, and we watched him do it again, because he had a safety harness and all this stuff. Well, Charles Blondin didn't have a safety harness, and, and, and thousands of people came to watch him do this to see if he would die. <laughs> They're all, people were like placing bets on whether he was going to make it, which is extremely uncomfortable to think about. <laughs> thousands of people are watching, Okay. So all he has is this big balancing pole. And he steps onto this thing. He's like 160 feet over Niagara Falls. And he walks, you've got the spray and you've got the wind and all of these things, but he's so comfortable doing this, he makes it all the way across and people are cheering like crazy. Then he decides to up the ante. He decides to get one of those old cameras, you know, this is the 19th century. So There's old, big old cameras you had to have on a tripod, big wooden things, and you had to have like the curtain coming, <laughs> this big thing. He takes one of those, puts, straps it to his back, and goes to the middle of the wire. And then he proceeds to set the tripod up on the wire because he's got this plank of wood that will allow the other two legs to come. So he balances this big, heavy camera over Niagara Falls and takes a picture of the crowd. Do, 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 packs it up and comes in. People are going crazy. And he decides to do something else. Ups the ante a little bit more. He takes a, a little stove and, and a frying pan and some eggs. And halfway over Niagara Falls, he makes breakfast on a wire. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. One account some of these are fuzzy because it's hard to tell if it was the same incident or if he had, he had done it multiple times. But one account says he lowered the eggs down by another rope to a boat so someone could have breakfast. I would have liked to be on that boat just to mess with them. Excuse me, I thought I ordered scrambled. <laughs> you go back and get that fixed. Thanks. Thanks, Chuck. He goes back to the side, people are cheering like crazy, and he's like, all right, I'm gonna get something big and heavy to carry in front of me. So he gets a big old wheelbarrow. (laughs) 
<laughs> like throws in like a bunch of potatoes. <laughs> Comes back. God, this must have taken a long time too because it took like 20 minutes to cross. He comes back and people are cheering wildly like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. You're amazing, Charles Blondin of the golden hair. You're unbelievable. And he's like, yes, yes. How many think I could cross again with a person in here? Like, oh yeah, we think you could. We think you could. He says, okay, who wants to get in? Crickets. And the $10,000 question is this. Did they believe? James told us in chapter 1, he said this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And he was saying clearly, faith cannot be strictly cerebral. It cannot be just an intellectual agreement to a fact or a proposition. It, if it's true faith, it must act. Faith does stuff, you know? Faith has to do stuff or it's not faith. What good are words with no actions? What good is faith without works? And more directly... If there are no actions, do we really believe in the first place? It's one thing to say, we think you could do that. It's another to actually get in. And this is kind of an uncomfortable question, isn't it? Let's move back to James 2. He says, but someone will say, he's setting up sort of a, a, a devil's advocate kind of argument here. Some will say, you have faith and I have works. Now he responds to this person, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. That's what they prayed every single morning. You believe that God is one. Good for you. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. If faith is merely intellectual belief, then every demon in hell is already saved. Oof. Really? Seriously? Huh. What do they know? You imagine the demons in hell like filling out a questionnaire, a religious questionnaire? <laughs> do you believe in God? Duh. Yeah. <laughs> you believe that God's three persons in one? Yes. Yeah. Do you believe that Jesus came down from? Yes, I tempted him myself. It didn't work. Do you believe he died? Yes, we had a party. Do you believe he rose again? Fine! What? They believe all the same things. Ouch! In other words, you guys, it's possible to give intellectual agreement to, to a thing without actually having faith. It's possible to give intellectual agreement that Jesus is Lord without him actually being Lord. And that's kind of a scary prospect. 
It was Jesus himself who said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you can call him Lord, you can call him king, but if you don't actually act on it, is in this case, if you don't actually obey him or treat him as king, then you probably don't really believe it. Don't really have faith that's alive. Again, this, this is a kind of a scary proposition. Because what it means is that it's possible to deceive ourselves into thinking we believe something that we don't actually believe. It's possible to get comfortable, go, yeah, I give intellectual agreement to that, without actually it actually affecting our lives. And James and Jesus are both saying that doesn't cut it, you guys. Doesn't cut it to go, uh-huh, yeah, okay, I believe that. Okay, I prayed that thing and I believe that. If it doesn't affect your life, then it's not real faith. Back to James 2. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Again, he's talking to his imagined sparring partner here. That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active long, uh, active along with works, and faith was completed by his works, and scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Two pretty vivid examples here that he gives. We have Abraham, who God called out of his city. And he says, I, I, will, I will make a whole nation out of you, Abraham. And I will make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. You need to leave where you are into, into the wilderness. Abraham believed God. You know how we know? Because he went. Not because he went, hmm, that's good. Mm. <laughs> no, he went. That's how we know he believed God. He could have gone, okay, I think that's true, but I'm going to hold on. No, th then you don't believe. He actually went. And he lived his life that way. And we know he had moments where he totally blew it, where he stopped believing momentarily. And we have those moments. This isn't a thing that like, man, if you truly believe, you're never going to slip up. No, of course not. There's grace in him. But our life should tell a story. And Abraham's life told a story. And you can't look at Abraham's life and think, that man didn't have faith. No, he had faith in the most uncomfortable story in the entire Old Testament, maybe. When he thinks, he thinks he's going to have to sacrifice his own son. And he walks through it and believes him because he thinks if this happens and God makes me go through with this, then I'm sure he's going to raise him up. That's what he actually thought. Then you have the story of Rahab. This woman was a Canaanite woman living in Jericho. And she knew that, that, that they were about to be defeated by the children of Israel. And she sees these spies and she hears the story and she, she says, remember me. I am going to hide you, but remember me. And so she, she, 
She looks around at her house. What does she have? She's got some straw. You guys, you mind being a little itchy? I know the guards are looking for you. How about you hide in my straw? And she, does, she hides him. She does something very, very illegal at great risk to herself so that these men will be saved and she can be rescued. And this woman, who probably experienced great shame in her life, was brought in by the children of Israel and, and, and is, it became one of Jesus' own ancestors. She was raised and honored in that way. I love that example because I love seeing how she was creative. <laughs> because see, we, can, we can hear things like this, okay, so faith should be connected to our lifestyle and think that suddenly you're in this rigid sort of, so I have to be this holy person and just, you know, and it becomes this very, mm, like everything. You know what? I, God created each one of us with different things and different abilities in order uh, uh, that we could love our neighbor in unique and beautiful ways. And, and throughout the book of James, as he's talking about works, what he's talking about here, all his, his examples are about loving your neighbor. He's saying, don't just think, don't just be like, mm, this is so good, I'm so glad I believe in Jesus. He's like, that needs to lead to stuff. Like giving that, that cold person a coat and giving him food. I kept reading that example this week, thinking about my home state of Texas. <laughs> all my family's down there. And I kept checking in with them because it was a pretty bad storm this week. So I've never experienced anything like that and I lived there most of my life. As the, the, the storm was coming in, a week and a half ago it was showing up, my brother sent me this screenshot of his phone and I saw three degrees was in the forecast. And I thought, oh, in Texas? The whole state was bracing. You know, everybody's going to the store, everybody's buying all the water, everybody's buying all the eggs and all these things and trying to stock up and everybody's sort of losing their minds thinking, what is this going to mean? We've never seen this kind of thing before. How do we deal with all the snow, all this stuff? There's no infrastructure for it. So as everybody's gearing up, I got a couple of friends that I worked with in YWAM, Robert and Callie Finney. And, and and they, instead of looking around, I mean, they're preparing too, but they look around and Callie is thinking, what about all the homeless people? Callie is a photographer. She has this amazing studio that's right on, on downtown square. She's incredibly good at what she does. And she has this huge, huge heart. And she has over the years gotten to be friends with all these different homeless people and sometimes she will feature them and she'll, she'll do beautiful portraits for them and tell their story and honor them and, 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 and show up for them if they need something. All these things. She just is, is, is very known for this in that community. Well, she's looking around while everybody is starting to point fingers at like who's, whose fault is this if things go bad? She's just thinking we got to figure out something to do with these homeless people. So there is a, a big old uh, Salvation Army uh, uh, down in Tyler. And it's I mean, it's you know big, beautiful facility. But they were having to turn people, they had to shut their doors and they're turning people away. They did not have room. And this is a real serious crisis, okay? Three degree, normally sleeping outside in Texas, I mean, obviously that's never comfortable and never ideal. But it, 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 you don't have the extreme temperature. So people don't have real heavy coats or heavy sleeping bags, anything like this. Like you're talking about people actually dying. 
So Callie start, jumps in her car and starts looking for her friends who are living at different intersections or, or whatever. She starts driving around and bringing them into her car and saying, okay, we need to get you to a motel. And going to the motel and saying, they need a room. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna like, okay, let's, until this is done, we need this room. Now she started calling her friends going, guys, we need to do something. There's a lot of people that are gonna freeze to death if we don't. And so she starts calling in her friends and they start driving around finding more and finding more and bringing them to motels. Now the thing is, she, these guys aren't sitting on a big pile of money here. They're just regular people. So she starts putting word out. She has a lot of friends on Facebook. She put word out, guys, we have these people we need to bring. Can anybody donate? Because I need to pay for a room for a whole week for this family. And then these people. And then people start jumping in. Now, the, the storm hits and it's getting bad. And if you look on social media, what you see is a whole lot of people in the midst of a crisis, I hate this so much, in the midst of a crisis, you see people pointing fingers at one another across political aisles, typically. So typical and it's so boring. Oh, it's your fault over there, you got, no, it's you, and it's all like based on who you voted for. It's so maddening. Well, you know what? My friend Callie didn't get involved in that. She just kept driving around looking for people. She put up 120 people in motel rooms all across, all across Tyler. And she, she didn't stop there, because she's like, we can't just put people up. They need some food. So she, you know what she did? She got on the phone, did this audacious thing, and just started calling restaurants, going, can you guys serve these people? Uh, this family over at the Motel 6, okay, this one at the Super A, this one family, and all of these, and restaurants start donating meals to these people to feed them. She's with every single one of them as they're coming in, talking with them, and she's realizing, gosh, some of these guys have some serious medical needs. Well, what do we do? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. You know what she did? She called the hospital. Are there any doctors that could come out and treat these homeless people for free? They're in here, and this cold weather is coming, and they really need help. So a bunch of doctors did that. And they just started working with people and writing out prescriptions. All of these things in the middle of the biggest, of like a generational storm. And she's staying with them, all of these, all these people. And I'm seeing this like develop on Facebook. I'm like, Callie, she's crazy. This is so awesome. Now you, you get to, to, to the end of the week and things start calming down a little bit. And she's thinking, okay, there's a lot of people who, who you know, have experienced something different this week. I wonder who would want to actually get off the street because there's always issues here, mental health issues, addiction issues, et cetera. I wonder who would actually want to get off and be ready for it. So she's, she's asking these questions, got questionnaires, trying to figure out where they're at. And now she's in contact with all these different ministries all around East Texas, uh, trying to get help for these people who want help. You think it ends there, but it doesn't because she just keeps going. She got so much in donations far above what she needed to house 120 people for an entire week. She decided, you know what we're gonna do? We are going to start a, a ministry here, a Tyler Street team, and we're gonna buy a van, and we're gonna, we're gonna have rotating volunteers, because so many people wanted to help, have rotating volunteers that can be like a, an action team, and every night they're gonna drive around, and they're gonna have a, a phone number listed on the side of that van, they're gonna go and help people who are in need, somebody having a health crisis, somebody having a mental health breakdown, maybe somebody, you know, uh, there, there's a violence, whatever it is, call here, we will come help you. That's what she's doing. 
You guys, isn't that a beautiful thing? I don't think that anybody could look at my friends Robert and Callie and question, do they really have faith though? Do they really have faith? Their life tells a story. The danger of telling a story like this is that it's such an amazing, cool example. I fully expect that we'll see national stories on what she's done here and what she's building. The danger of telling it is it's like, oh man, I couldn't do something like that. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do something like that, so I guess I just can't do anything. I see the whole point is this. God created each one of you with all kinds of gifts and all kinds of capacity that your neighbor probably doesn't have. You have relationships. You have resources. Her resources is a lot of friends on Facebook, basically. <laughs> you have resources. And I think what we have is an invitation to put our faith into action. To not let it stay up here. To not get drugged down into all the mud slinging that says, this is the way you love your neighbor. You vote this way, this is the... No, how about we just bypass that and just love our neighbor? How about we just take initiative? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This is the thing, this is the reason I rail against those like hardcore partisan politics because it paralyzes us in the church and it paralyzes us into complete lack of action except for arguing. What if we just bypassed all of that and just said, here's what I have. I'm gonna love my neighbor today. That's what I'm gonna do. And that's our invitation, to take the beautiful, unique things that he's given each and every one of you and to act. Let your life tell a story. What story is it gonna tell? Our faith isn't staying up here. It's gonna begin here, but it's gotta move through us. And that, I think, is a beautiful invitation.